Well, Merry Christmas. Let us hear what God speaks to us in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, starting in chapter 9, the first seven verses. But there will be no gloom for her who, for, for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David, and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thank you, Rick. Of all the holidays that our country celebrates, I think it's safe to say that Christmas is the most happy. Christmas is the most merry. After all, that's the standard greeting, Merry Christmas. This is a season to be of good cheer. It's a holly jolly Christmas. But for Christians, Christmas goes deeper. The coming of Jesus doesn't just make us happy. It doesn't just make us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside. But for Christians, the arrival of Jesus ultimately gives us joy. You see, joy is different from happiness. They may look the same on the outside, they may wear the same expressions, but underneath what gives rise to happiness and what gives rise to joy are distinct and altogether different. Happiness is more fleeting, more temporal, more surfacy. It comes and goes and is often directly connected to our external circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is more enduring. It doesn't come from the outside, but rather bubbles up from the inside. I read somewhere that while happiness resides in the face, joy resides in the heart. It's more transcendent. It's more spiritual. There's a reason why joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, while happiness is not. 
You see, it's hard to be happy when you're going through chemo, but it's possible to experience joy in that place. It's hard to feel happy when your employer overlooks you, doesn't appreciate you, but it is possible to experience joy. It's it's hard to be happy when you're celebrating Christmas all by yourself, but even in that solitary moment, it's possible to experience joy. They say that happiness is smiling when the sun's out. Joy is dancing during the downpour. Why? Well, happiness is based on what is happening to you. For Christians, joy is based on what God is doing in you. And joy is what I want to talk about this morning. Joy is the central focus of Isaiah 9, verse 3. And we're going to spend our entire time unpacking this one verse. I want you to listen for the bells of joy that ring throughout this one verse. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil Over and over again, the bells of joy ring throughout this one verse. Isaiah declares that there will come a day where darkness and shame will be no more, where despair and anguish will be eclipsed by overwhelming soul reverberating joy. And how joyful will God's people be? Verse 3 states, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Isaiah thinks of the two happiest times of his people. Since it's an agricultural economy, the farmer is no more happier than during harvest time where the countless hours and days of sweat and toil, tilling, fertilizing, watering the land comes to fruition as they gather their crops. And for the soldier, is there a more happy time than military victory where the hours of training, the sleepless nights, the pain, the loss of soldiers and lives are finally made worth it as they celebrate victory? These two metaphors of harvest and victory are all the more accentuated when you consider the backdrop of Israel's historical context. Last week, we were reminded of the deep darkness that Israel finds herself during the days of Isaiah due to their open rebellion and hostility against God. God disciplines them with famine and hunger. And so how much sweeter is the idea that the prospect of harvest during a time of hunger, God disciplines Israel with military defeat as the Assyrian Empire conquers them, displaces them, and carries them off in chains 
How much sweeter then is this dream, this idea of victory during a time of defeat? Here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 3, he makes a bold prediction. He predicts that one day joy will come. Harvest gathering joy, spoil dividing joy. This joy will be ours. And this is not some blip on the radar when it comes to Isaiah. This is not some arbitrary footnote found in his book this random thought that falls on his pages. No, when you read Isaiah, this prophecy of soul reverberating joy fills the book. Isaiah 29, verse 19, the meek shall attain fresh joy in the Lord and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, verse 10, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 61, verse 7, instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. And lastly, Isaiah 65, 18 through 19, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. I love what God says in Isaiah 65. He tells his people, you're not just going to experience joy, you will become joy. You're not just going to experience moments of gladness, you will become gladness. I read all these verses to help you to see that joy is not some arbitrary fruit of the Christian faith, but it's it's part and parcel. It's at the heart of our faith. When you squeeze the book of Isaiah, joy just gushes out of this book. And this harvest joy, this spoil-dividing joy, this soul-reverberating joy is what God desires for you this morning. This may come as a surprise for some of us because we've grown up with the idea that God is all about duty rather than delight. That going to church, to worship, that reading his word, that praying is something we have to do, not something that we get to do. For many of us growing up in the church, when we picture God, we picture a stern disciplinarian, a harsh and strict judge who is looking over your shoulder out to get you for every misstep you make. And so when you have this picture of a harsh God like this, a sterile God, reading about joy in the Lord just feels so disconnected and foreign. 
But dear friends, the God of the Bible is a God who overflows with joy and desires you to experience his joy. He desires to maximize and perfect your joy in him. The centrality of joy in the Christian life is is, uh, expressed in the very first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which asks, what is the chief end of man? What is man's ultimate purpose in life? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Westminster divines were wise enough to to see as they read scripture that God is not just pursuing our our obedience, he's also pursuing our enjoyment of him. That the two can't be separated. That as zealous as he is for your purity, he is also zealous for your joy. John Piper accentuates the centrality of joy all the more by paraphrasing that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Now, having established the importance and centrality of joy in the Christian life, having established that that joy is a part of Isaiah's vision for God's people in the future, what are the reasons for this joy? Why do we experience harvest, spoil-dividing joy? Well, verse 3 gives us two reasons. First, found at the beginning of verse 3, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. The multiplication of the nation gives us joy. Elsewhere, Isaiah says something similar, Isaiah 26 verse 15, but you have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation, you are glorified, you have enlarged all the borders of the land. Isaiah 54, one through three, sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Isaiah sees a day where the nation of Israel will multiply exponentially, where the borders of Israel will be too small, that even the region of Israel cannot contain all of the people who will be streaming from the nations. Reminded of the famous quote found in the movie Jaws, where the main character sees Jaws for the first time, and what does he say? We're going to need a bigger boat. Isaiah sees the day where the nations will stream towards the, the, the city of Zion, and he says to himself, we're going to need a bigger kingdom, enlarge the cords, expand the borders, for God's nation will multiply. 
And for those of you familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Isaiah isn't saying anything new here. This is not a novel concept. All he's doing is recasting, reminding his people of God's promise to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, you will be the father of many nations. And so Isaiah is simply fleshing that out and reminding his people, God will keep that promise. He will multiply the nation. Now again, I want you to consider how ludicrous Isaiah's prophecy would have sounded to his original audience. They were just conquered by the Assyrians. They're not multiplying, they're dividing. They're getting smaller. They're losing hundreds of people. And so you can imagine these Israelites in chains listening to Isaiah talking about multiplication, saying, you're crazy, Isaiah. You're talking about multiplication when my concern is our survival that will retain our history, our language, our religion. How in the world can you talk about multiplication? And yet Isaiah is not deterred. His hope is not shaken. He says, joy will come. Our nation will multiply. So that's the first reason for joy. The second reason is also found in verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. I want to emphasize that word before because in the Hebrew language, that word before is rich. The English translation doesn't fully capture its significance. In the English, before is nothing more than a preposition that connotes location. The mailbox is before you, not behind you. Tells you where it is. But in the Hebrew language, this word for before literally translated means face. You might remember what Jacob said after he wrestled with God all night in Genesis 32. For I have seen God face to face. And so what Isaiah sees is a day when God's people will rejoice before God's face. What he's talking about is presence here. He sees a day where God's people will be before the very face of God, celebrating, dancing, rejoicing in the glory of God. Again, consider the unlikelihood of this coming true. Far from experiencing God's presence, Israel has experienced God's absence. Far from experience God's delight, Israel has experienced God's shame, God's anger, God's disappointment for all the ways they have pursued the things of the world, for all the ways they've turned their back on their creator and redeemer. This is a period of harsh judgment in Israel's history. 
And so the idea of dancing and celebrating before the face of God was indeed a distant, far-fetched reality. I bring out this dynamic because I know that some of you could probably relate to Israel's unbelief. That as you hear me say that God is pursuing your joy and wants to complete and perfect your joy, your thought is, yeah, right. Do you have any idea what I'm going through? Do you have any idea the number of bills that are collecting in my home? Do you have any idea just how broken my marriage is? Do you have any idea how deep my pain is? It's so overwhelming, Jeff. The very fact that you even mention joy it seems insensitive for you to say that to me during this time. Joy for me? I don't think so. And yet, this message that Isaiah preaches, this message of joy, is not given to a people who are in joyful circumstances this message of joy is given to people who are in the worst of circumstances. And so that same message given to starving, hungry, conquered Israel is the same message that God proclaims to you even now. And so I want you to still give me an ear and not shut me off completely. How then will this joy be fulfilled? How will Isaiah's uh, prophecy come true where the nations will multiply, where sinners will come in the, before the face of God and be able to dance and celebrate? When will this come true? For those of us who have grown up in the church, we know the answer. It is Jesus who fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. It is Jesus who is the child who will come that Isaiah later talks about. 700 years after Isaiah penned these words, an angel of the Lord appeared before some shepherds who were keeping watch over their flocks. And the angel would say something that would change the history of the world forever. Luke 2, verse 10 through 11 says this, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of what? Good news of great joy. The word good news there is where we get the word gospel. The angel proclaims good news, a gospel that will bring great joy, harvest time joy. For who? For all the people. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Not just sovereigns, but also shepherds. Not just billionaires, but also beggars. Not just for the pious, but also for the promiscuous. This news 
will open the floodgates of heaven. This child to be born will gather the nations, will multiply the kingdom of God. In fact, angel could have said to the shepherds, 2,000 years from now, there's going to even be people gathered across the globe in a city called Irvine where people from countries and places you've never thought or imagined will gather together to talk about what's going on right now. In other words, we are the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. We are part of that multiplication. Wow. Not only will this Messiah open the floodgates of God's kingdom and expand its borders in ways we could never imagine, but this Messiah, this child, will also bring sinners before the very face of God. And when these sinners come before God's face, they will not experience wrath, they will not experience disappointment and anger, but rather they will experience joy and delight. Apart from Jesus, appearing before God's face is the last place where you and I would want to be. When you match up God in all of his holiness with mankind in all of our sinfulness, the only thing that's going to come out of that union is judgment and wrath. But because of Jesus, because of his death on the cross, his blood shed for us, we will appear before God just as if we've never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed. And when we approach him and appear before the very throne of God, the only emotion God feels towards us will be delight, will be pride, will be affection and joy. we will feel his smile beaming down upon us. And as we behold him, what used to be hell for us will now become heaven. And as the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, we'll see that there is nothing in this world that can satisfy us quite like our God, that there is nothing more beautiful than him, more precious, more valuable, more worthy of our time and affections than him. That as he pours his joy in us, it's going to start aligning our hearts correctly as we aim towards the true source of all life and joy. And we'll cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness 
of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. As the Holy Spirit works in us as we experience God's delight, we will see that God is not just the master to be, be obeyed, but he is a fountain to be enjoyed, a treasure chest to be explored, a pearl of great price worth sacrificing everything for. Now, as I share this message on joy, I am sensitive to the fact that this message that strives to give you joy can be used by Satan and the flesh to rob us of joy. What I mean is this. Some people will feel burdened by this message. Because they look at their lives and they don't see any joy and the thought occurs, there must be something wrong with me. And because there must be something wrong with me, it actually buries you into deeper unjoy. It's at this point where I want to tell you if you are experiencing this more as a burden rather than an invitation to not be so hard on yourself and not be so quick to judge yourself as something wrong with you. Because you see, Advent is all about living in a tension. Remember, Advent refers to both comings of Jesus, not just the first one. We live in between the two arrivals of Jesus Christ. And indeed, because of the first arrival, joy is now accessible to you and I, which is why the Apostle Paul can exclaim in Philippians 4, verse 4, rejoice always, again I say rejoice. But at the same time, Jesus' second coming has yet to come, which means that we still live in a broken and fallen world, and we still live in broken and fallen bodies, which explains why Paul can also say emphatically in Romans chapter 8 that along with creation, we will groan for the redemption of our bodies. And so on one hand, Rejoice again, I say rejoice. On the other hand, we will groan like the, like the pains of childbirth until Jesus comes again. There's this tension where the Christian life is not all joy, neither is it all sorrow. It's joyful and sorrowful. We live in that tension. We'll sing both in major keys and minor keys. And if you find yourself singing a minor key right now, I don't want you to automatically assume there must be something wrong with me. Show yourself some grace. With that being said, 
I don't want to paint the idea that joy is some elusive emotion that we just have to passively wait for and hope will come and fall on our laps. Joy is something we can pursue. Joy is something that we can cultivate. Henry Nouwen says it this way, joy does not simply happen to us. We have to choose joy and keep choosing it every day. We have to pursue joy. And how do we do this? Well, I think C.S. Lewis is helpful here. He writes this, quote, Good things as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. If you're close to it, the spray will wet you. If you're not, you'll remain dry. It's like common sense. If you want to get warm, get near a fire. If you want to get wet, get in the water. If you want joy, Draw near to the source and fountain of joy. Every preacher knows what it's like to step away from the pulpit after a sermon is done and hang their head in disappointment and shame. Every preacher has those days where they say to themselves, I just bombed that sermon. I wish I could have done it over. I've certainly had those days. But thankfully, God has always, throughout my ministry, provided at least one person who's a perpetual source of encouragement and blessing. One person who, for some strange reason, always enjoys my preaching. And one person I can think of is our, our brother Paul Eck. He's no longer here. But he is someone where whenever I looked at him, he's smiling. <laughs> Even if I feel completely lost and like, oh my gosh, this sermon needs to end ASAP, I'll look at him and he's smiling. He'll send me a text every Sunday. Thank you for preaching the word to me. So what do you think I'm going to do when I'm feeling dejected? I'm going to look for him. I'm going to ask him, like a puppy, how did the sermon go? When life gets us down and we feel the weight of our burdens and sins, where should we go for encouragement? Who should we seek to lift up our heads? Is it not the one who has nothing but affection for you and me? Is it not the one who is waiting for us scanning the horizon for us, 
so that the moment we take a step in his direction, he comes running, sprinting towards us. Is it not the one who has nothing but pride and delight waiting for us? May we warm ourselves next to the fire of God's joy. May we draw near to his side and bask in his glowing presence because of Jesus, we are the apple of his eye. And so if we want to experience joy, let's pursue it with all that we've got. Let's draw near to him. We need to be intentional with this pursuit. This may mean a little less screen time and a little more scripture time. This may mean a little less Netflix and a little bit more prayer. But we can pursue it. We can draw near to the fire of God's joy. And let us not forget that whatever we are experiencing today, that there will be a day where we will no longer have to live by faith, but we can live by sight. There will be a day where we'll come before God and experience the fullness of God's joy face to face. And may we wait for that day to come together. Let's pray. Lord, joy is something that our hearts crave. Joy is something that we long for. And we know that, Lord, joy is something that you long for us. Joy is something you desire for us to experience. And we thank you that because of Christ, this joy is made possible, that because of Christ, this joy will be made complete. Help us, O oh Lord, to draw near to you and see the joy that is ours as your children, to know that we are beloved, to know that we are the apple of your eye. And may these truths carry us and give us joy in times where the world may think there's nothing but unjoy. And may our hearts, Lord, be warmed by your presence and enable us, O oh Lord, to sing uh, in the midst of groaning, to sing in the midst of sighing. And we pray this in Jesus' name.